You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Scott Simon is a writer, broadcaster, and reporter. He's the host of NPR's Weekend Edition with Scott Simon. Just some of the awards he's won include the Peabody, the Emmy, the Columbia DuPont, the Ohio State Award, and the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. His books include Jackie Robinson in the Integration of Baseball, his memoir, Home and Away, and two novels, Pretty Birds and Windy Cities. His most recent book is Baby We Were Meant for Each Other during the Cabrillo... Festival of Contemporary Music. He will be joining Maestro Marin Alsop for a two-sided interview in the Blue Room. Thank you for joining me, Scott. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Scott, you know, when I uh, look at your resume and think about uh, all the things you've done and exactly who you are and how we know you, it seems like you've been on a long journey uh, to find your voice, and it's a journey that's still continuing. Oh, I hope it's continuing. I mean, I, I think if you get satisfied and comfortable, um, you know, something's wrong. Uh, that means things are about to change, uh, which doesn't mean you can't take, uh, you know, transient satisfaction and comfort. But on the other hand, I, you know, I, I think you've always got to keep your eyes open and your heart open and learning things. Uh, I mean, I think one of, the, one of the best quotations I ever heard was from Muhammad Ali. Um, and I have borrowed this shamelessly for my own uh, my own purposes, where, you know, he said, there's, there's something wrong with you if you think the same things at the age of 40 that you did when you were 20. Uh, and I, I expand that to say that, uh, you know, you ought, to, you ought to learn from each and everything you do and keep challenging yourself with new projects. Well, you've been doing so many different things, and I'd like to just talk to you about your journey from broadcasting and reporting to writing books. I think that's a really interesting transition, and it's, you know, so much all of them are also voice-oriented. And But casting your voice as you are here on the radio right now is very different from sitting in your ivory tower, as it were, or your comfortable uh, bedroom writing prose. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think if my wife would refer to our bedroom as comfortable. Uh, <laughs> with two little children, there's not, you know, uh, there's, uh, who are always, you know, God bless, we love to have them in there, but boy, they, they do create a ruckus. Um, you know, it, it, it is different, but then that's why I do it. That's why I welcome the chance. I welcome the different frame of mind. Uh, I, d- I do think writing novels in particular is, uh, is different. It's not as if I've just, you know, taken things that I do on the air and, written a nonfiction book about something I've already reported. Um, what I pointedly tried to do is write novels about situations and people that in part, uh, as novelists often do, are in part derived from experience I've had, but also are real enough where you let them take root in your imagination and they become people that you, you never uh, imagined. Um, I mean, I have my novel Pretty Birds about two teenage girls during the siege of Sarajevo. Uh, on the one hand, it was perfectly natural for me, for me, to write a book telling about the siege of Sarajevo through the eyes of two teenage girls, because as I've sometimes explained to people over the years, when you covered that siege, uh, teenage girls ruled the street during the day because there were sniper fire and artillery fire, uh, and parents and grandparents would commonly just understandably keep themselves cooped up in their apartments 
uh, and young boys uh, were off in the army. So it was the young teenage girls who would scour the streets and bring back uh, water and food supplies that were being you know, passed out by the United Nations soldiers um, and just stay outside and smoke and sing songs, too. Uh, so I found it very natural, based on my repertorial experience, to try and tell a story through the eyes of two teenage girls. On the other hand, where the imagination came in, of course, uh, were so many other characters, including one of my favorite small characters, I must point out, a guy named Molly. Uh, because I would meet mercenaries who were there from all over the world, but I, I, I created a mercenary soldier whose name operational name was Molly, uh, who turned out to be a gay South African mercenary. And I love that character. He's one of my favorites. And he literally did inhabit my, uh, my imagination one night, and um, he became someone very real. You know, that's, I think, why your books are so striking, because they, it, like the best fiction, become memories for us as, as readers. When we read them, the reading experience transforms what you write into a memory that we can have. So we can kind of look back and visit uh, Molly and, and your, your teenage characters as if they were people we knew and we met. And because of the way you create them in your memory, the same w way we do in ours when we read. Well, I, you know, I hope so, because I know that's what uh, certainly novels and literature has done for me. And I think when a, when a novel is well done uh, and the characters are valid, um, they begin to inhabit parts of your mind and your heart and accompany you through the rest of your life, uh, you know, a lot of time and context. Um, and uh, b because they become real. I mean, you know they're characters, but they, they become real. They're resonant in our lives. You, uh, you rely on the thought of them for solace and comfort and amusement. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, I think, what a novelist really strives for. Well, one of the things, too, that strikes me is that all the conversations you've had with all the people over all the years have really given you a facility for creating language versions of people so that you have had so many conversations over so many years, and those conversations are pure language, that it gives you this facility for creating people out of just language for us on the page or bringing those people to life when you speak to them on the radio. You know, I hope so. And, and you know, this is something that I... I'm very intent on telling people that, you know, on the one hand, I do think that, um, you know, my the, the dialogue in my novels is not just incidental because I, I think you're quite right. My, my experience is I, it's given me an ear and a, a, um, and a kind of tuning fork uh, for what I hope can be good dialogue or at least dialogue that, uh, you know, progresses something and betrays something of character. Um, I also think that, you know, writing the novels refreshes me for the work I do on the radio. Mm. Uh, I think if I were doing just one thing and kept doing it year after year, uh, I would grow tired of threading myself into the ground. Uh, but I'm not, and I always find new things to challenge myself, in part because I think it makes me fresher uh, for what we do here on the radio and what's heard over KUSP. You know, um, one of the things you've done is you have a, a long history with uh, Maestra Marin Alsup. You, tell yeah. us about uh, meeting her when, when you first met her. You know, I would have to look up the year. It's been a number of years ago at this point, and uh, Marin was not yet the uh, music director of the Baltimore Symphony. She was the uh, director of the Bournemouth Symphony, which is a little bit south of London. 
and uh, of course uh, was out at Cabrillo every summer. Um, and I, I believe, she, I, I could be corrected, something like the Rocky Mountain Symphony Orchestra. And uh, people in our arts unit said, well, we, we were interested in talking to someone about classical music. And with all due respect, we didn't want to talk to a music critic. I mean, we do that every now and then. But when we, when we look to kind of talk to people in regular portfolios, we, we, we try and do something different. I mean... Uh, you know, Daniel Pinkwater and I read children's stories. Mm-hmm. The uh, the man we talk to about literature and books is a cab driver um, in London. Um, we try and, and look for some kind of different perspective. And in any event, they said there is this uh, magnificent symphony conductor, and she's just a wonderful communicator, Maestra Marin Alsop. And her, her mentor was Leonard Bernstein, and uh, we all know what a wonderful communicator he was. And I think from the moment she came into the studios, we found her lucid and funny and could explain anything and uh, cared about everything and, uh, and made you care about music that you, uh, you know, perhaps weren't introduced to before. And uh, I think from the first moment, we realized that we'd found somebody who was a special talent verbally. Now, this is, of course, in addition to <laughs> leading the symphony <laughs> and doing the amazing work that she does there. And, and subsequently, as I've learned, you know, she, uh, she and some of her friends have a jazz and swing orchestra when they get together, too. So uh, she ranges over all kinds of music. And, of course, she's brilliant. I have been in a position getting to know her and becoming, um, as she has been for a number of years now, uh, the conductor uh, in residence at Baltimore. I've performed with her symphony. I've uh, done a, a few things. I've done Peter and the Wolf, and I've done Icarus at the Edge of Time, which is the Philip Glass piece. And it's just wonderful working with Marin, both here in our studio um, and on stage. It's, uh, it's just terrific. And I have been in a, at a position to really observe uh, a, a larger part of the range of her gifts, because, of course, when you head a major symphony orchestra, as Marin does, um, part of your work is on stage. Uh, and it's visible in the performance. But then there are, of course, rehearsals we never see, which are an important part of the work of the general public never never sees. Uh, there's meeting with people. Uh, one of my favorite bits whenever uh, I'm working with Marin on stage is after rehearsals, there are a whole group of Baltimore school kids that come to the rehearsals. And the maestra sits down with them and takes questions from them. And it's wonderful uh, because, of course, she is so... Um, magnificent at explaining things and it's just it's uh, it's just great fun and uh, and I you know I I, I think uh, as I think I've said this from the stage once that I think um, it's a really it's the orchestra's real golden time with Marin and I think I think Marin and the BSO are uh, the greatest show on earth at the moment you know the way you describe her it seems like you can see like her i can see why you guys are, are have become friends because uh like you she's a a, a communicator on both levels uh, directing a, a conducting a symphony orchestra is nothing <clears throat> if not a, a an act of very complex communication yeah absolutely because they're they're the musicians they're they're the supporting players um, there's the there's the whole corporate structure that you have to communicate with. Just a fact of life when you're a big name conductor these days, and uh, and she does that beautifully and very well. I mean, she makes her shows. She doesn't just play the music and say take it or leave it. She's open to to use an overworked phrase dialogue, um, and is wonderful at setting that up with people and uh, and helping them to care uh, and helping helping them to understand and care about music. Uh, which hadn't been exposed to them before. And um, 
you know, I just I just appreciate about uh, that about her so much. And uh, you know, I've subsequently learned, of course. I mean, she she loves Cabrillo, and she loves the atmosphere there. And I think part of it is that kind of openness. You know, I I think when you're <laughs> a musician of Marin's caliber, um, you don't accept that everybody in the world shouldn't love the music. And, you know, it's just music. It's enjoyable. It's uplifting. It fills us in a certain, uh, certain human way. And I think one of the things that, one of the many things that Marin treasures about Cabrillo is that apparently, I'll find out for myself this year, that's very much the atmosphere there. Uh, it's not off-putting. It's open. It's uh, people enjoying music as music and, uh, and great performers as interpreters of those music. Well, one of the things I think this openness between you and Marin and here is that it's led you to guys to have kind of a role reversals. You guys met with you interviewing her and she kind of turned the tables on you and brought you in to, to narrate Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and, yeah, she did. And that uh, that first time around must have uh, been some kind of a, a kind of a wild thing because you were competing with a 12 gauge shotgun. Yes, the, the, the shotgun <laughs> plays a very memorable role, come to think of it. And also, I'm not sure competing is the word, but there are so many great and famous voices who, of course, have, have famously narrated Peter and the Wolf. Mm. And, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, um, I think almost certainly all the adults sitting in that, in that uh, I, I guess I did it for three performances or four performances, all of the adults uh, at those performances had... You know, I had heard the version of Peter and the Wolf that was narrated by Rex Harrison or narrated by Orson Welles or uh, narrated by some plummy famous English actor who was not me. Speaking of plummy, Christopher Plumberbury, I think, uh, very memorably did it. Um, you know, great voices, Peter Ustinoff being my favorite. That was and the I one I grew up on. Yes, I know. And, <laughs> and I, of course, couldn't. Uh, now, Peter. I mean, he was wonderful. And uh, in any event, so I, you, you want to do something that's worthy of a great orchestra and also won't, you know, won't force people to walk home going, well, you know, he ain't no Peter Ustinoff, which is true. I am not no Peter Ustinoff, <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, you hope to do something that's, uh, that's worthwhile. You know, uh, the other piece that you worked with her on, uh, the, based on that Brian Greene uh, book, that's an f- incredible book. I love that book. It's such a great concept of retelling the Icarus myth in a science fiction format with a, a young boy who comes too close to the black hole and then finds himself uh, sucked into a relativistic future. You know, it's a great piece, and I didn't know it before, you know, Marin. Uh, asked me to do it, and because uh, I have, I have certainly interviewed Brian Greene x number of times over the years, and, and and find it fascinating, find him fascinating. But I didn't know the piece, and of course she said Philip Glass, and I, I forgive me, I think I can say, you know, I, we know Philip Glass is a great musician, composer, artist, and genius. But how many Philip Glass jokes have you heard? You know, I mean, not always to everyone's taste. It's Philip Glass, Philip Glass, Philip Glass, you know, that sort of thing. And this is the best Philip Glass piece that I've ever heard. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's enrapturing. It's uplifting. And I think for the first time I got the run through, uh, I said, boy, this is really good. And it's a wonderful, touching human story and, and about the little boy. 
Well, you know, uh, talk and, about- and I have this is something, of course, Marin uh, Marin has a son. I have two daughters. Uh, Brian Green, for that matter, has a couple of kids all about the you know, all about the same age who uh, were all able to spend time together, which is wonderful. And one of the things, you know, we're looking forward to our kids being together out there in Cabrillo. Well, talk about, you know, you're you just have a new book out called Baby, We Were Meant for Each Other. This is yet another um variation uh, on themes for you. Talk about writing that book. That must have been a very personal book for you to write. You know, uh, certainly. Uh, My wife points out, though, uh, very shrewdly, that all of my books, even Mm. the novels, have been personal. I I mean, I don't, you know, I don't don't write a book casually. You don't Uh, do anything casually. (laughs) I guess I don't. But, uh, (laughs) you know, in uh, I I love Sarajevo deeply to this day and cared very deeply about that story. I probably don't have to tell anybody who listens to KUSP how deeply I love Chicago, uh, which, of course, was the setting for my political comedy, Windy City. Um, In this particular book, which was the the idea of my editor at Random House— it's about adoption. It's not just our story, but it's the story, uh, we're certainly in there, but it's actually vignettes into a dozen other families, too, who have been, I, I prefer this phrase, blessed or touched by adoption. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's some hard stories to read in there, too, at the same time. But I, I think my, my wife and I had gone from thinking at one point, I would never want to do a book like this, to thinking, you know, no, I want to do a book like this because we have grown to feel very deeply that we, we want to open a window uh, on adoption uh, for lots of people who might have questions about beginning a family, or adding to a family. Um, and, and I think insofar as we can demystify the process and rob it of some of the stereotypes and to uh, make plain what we know to be true, that it is uh, an absolute blessing in life. And something that, by the way, is just about as old as childbirth. It's been going on for centuries. Um, that that would be good because, you know, there are at least 150. I'm sorry, I get carried away when I talk about this. There are 150 million children in the world who need homes, who are orphaned, abandoned, uh, and they need and deserve their one best chance in life is the is the love of a parent, the the absolutely unqualified, undiscriminating love of a parent to to help them grow up and find a place in our world. And I, you know, nothing could do, nothing as far as I'm concerned could do more good things for this planet than for more children to be adopted. So. Uh, my wife and I felt if I could write a book that would open that process uh, for people, uh, maybe I'd done something good. Well, the book certainly brings so much joy to the reader and gives us so much uh, access to the kind of raw emotions. And you really do a fabulous job of bringing out, using you know your prose skills and your descriptive skills and your plotting skills and your conversational skills to create these portraits of how bringing children into the lives of a family. It's, it's a really powerful work. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of good stories in there, mm-hmm. um, which, which uh, you know, I think are important. I, I was uh, Thomas Lauderdale, the 
leader of the great music group Pink Martini. I was just performing with them in Central Park over the weekend. God bless. Um, you know, Thomas is adopted, and his three uh, brothers and sisters in the family uh, are, are also adopted. And that, that can be, that's both a glorious and sometimes a rough story to read. And a great sports writer, Frank DeFord, familiar to lots of people from Morning Edition. Um, he and his wife, Carol, and, and adopted their daughter, Scarlett, and that story is in the book. Uh, oh, my gosh. One of my favorites is um, Martin Simon, uh, is a photographer of some note, and he is the son of Paul Simon, late senator from Illinois, and Gene Simon. Um, he, he grew up as a young Native American youngster, was on his birth certificate. Maybe I've already tipped the, the punchline. But when he met his birth mother, uh, when he was, I guess, 28 years old, as he said to me, she, um, uh, she, she looked just about as Native American as Diana, Princess of Wales. And he said to her, how are we Indian? And she said, Indian. He said, well, it says my birth certificate, I'm Indian. And she goes, oh, you know, they, they asked me what we were, and I said, uh, oh, we're all American. <laughs> so that got marked down as Native American, and he grew up. Uh, believing that he was Native American. And his, his father, the late senator from Illinois, Paul Simon, actually became chairman of the Senate Subcommittee on Native American Affairs. And he grew up, and, you know, they were scrupulous about honoring his heritage and making him proud of it. And then he finds out at the age of 28 he's Swedish, uh, <laughs> ethnically. And, as, you know, as he said to me, I'd already gone to all those powwows. <laughs> he said, what am I supposed to do, like Ludafisk now? Because, you know, and I love that story because particularly those of us who have families where, you know, they're interracial adoptions, uh, it, it just reminds you how, how in the end that kind of stuff doesn't count for anything. And as I, I say to people, it's not as if we forget that our daughters are Chinese. It's not as if we don't care that our daughters are Chinese because we want them to you know, know their heritage and, and respect it um, and have some feeling for it. Um, you know, on the other hand, whole weeks go by and you just forget about that when you're in a family. Um, be, you know, because you, you see them as so many other things before you ever see their ancestry. You know, you see them as hungry, thirsty, tired, funny, um, <laughs> all of that stuff. And then, you know, and then every now and then you go, oh, yeah, they're Chinese. I mean, you you know, you forget uh, I happen to be a diabetic. And our oldest daughter is now eight, Elise, last year was worried, She you know, because she observes that I never eat sweet stuff. And, of course, Elise loves chocolate and she loves sorbet and she loves... I, stuff kids do. And she said, Baba, how do you become a diabetic? And I said, well, maybe it's from, from your family line. In my case, it was my grandfather. Uh, you know, it's, it's in your family line. It's inherited. And she said, uh, will I be a diabetic? And I said, well, baby, I don't know. As you, you know, as you grow older, we'll certainly have you tested all the time. And, you know, it could be that you've inherited it from me and my family line. But, you know, the chances are you won't. We'll just keep an eye on it. And then I thought for a moment, oh, no, wait. <laughs> you don't have to worry about inheriting it from me. <laughs> that's, that's not good. And I said, you know, baby, I think you'll be fine. I mean, don't worry about it. Well, you know, and uh, but that's how, I mean, our, our little girls both happen to be left-handed. And my wife is left-handed. And I said to my wife without thinking one day, well, they must get that from your side of the family. And then I realized, no, they get that from a couple of guys in China. <laughs> but uh, in any event, that's how instinctive and natural and reflexive the, um, uh, the relationship is. And um, 
you know, I, I, I think I wanted to open that door for people so that they would, uh, so that they would understand it. It's a, a real family, and I, and I, and I also think. You know, kids who are adopted have a tough start in life. There's no doubt about it. But uh, as Jeff Seller, the Broadway producer who's also in the book, he's adopted and he and his partner Josh have adopted two, uh, two youngsters now. As Jeff Seller says, you know, there's something tough in life waiting for all of us at one point or another. It, it's, it's all a question of how we handle it and how we grow up uh, because of it. Uh, and, and, you know, we think on the whole uh, you might grow up better and stronger because of it. And I also think for those of us who have families that are, are blessed by adoption, we feel the need to say things aloud to each other, to confide how much we love each other, how precious we are, how we are at the center of each other's lives, in a way that maybe in <laughs> traditional uh, biblical begetting families, let's put it that way, uh, maybe you accept on autopilot. You know, because, of course, that's how I grew up. And I, I, I think that, you know, there's in, in families that are blessed by adoption, there's probably less of the, hey, you're my son, of course I love you. Or, oh, yeah, don't worry, you're my dad, I love you. Uh, I, I, I think maybe it sometimes underscores for us the importance of the, of the intimacy and the, um, uh, that we share on life's road. And, uh, and I think all of that is to the better because I think we feel compelled to utter that aloud to each other. You know, um, one of the, you will be speaking with Marin in a two-sided interview, so yeah. I want you to talk about uh, this idea of a two-sided interview. Have you done these before? And uh, just the idea of trying to go back and forth, that seems a, a, a high on the list of easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have not done it before. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that my first time is with Marin. Um her You've people got have two contact. master communicators. Uh, well, I, certainly she is. Uh, our people, can I say this? Her people have contacted my people to, uh, to take advantage of a little advance information. So uh, I, I found myself thinking yesterday, hmm, well, if Marin's people are asking about that, it must mean because she's going to ask about fill in the blank. And then I thought, no. Maybe she's trying to pull an old switcheroo. <laughs> Maybe she's just trying to throw me off balance by telling me we'll talk about that. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure because of Marin, it'll uh, it'll go wonderfully well. And uh, you know, I think the nice part is that we're we're going to have a chance to uh, you know to talk to each other in that in that setting and probably you know explore some areas that uh, you know for one reason or another just. Uh, uh, you know, we haven't been able to talk about with each other. I know it sounds strange uh, because we're going to be doing it publicly, but I, I think this is a good opportunity for that. I, I, I've seen that happen where two people who have know each other well and have talked to one another for many years and have worked together very closely sometimes have never even got back to the basic questions of, well, how did you start doing this or why did yeah. you do that? And, and it's fascinating to see those kind of um, emotional transactions take place, and you're going to get to be in that emotional transaction. Yes, no, I, I, I absolutely think so. And, I, you know, I think part of it, what you mentioned, is that, uh, you know, you just, like, assume uh, so much. And, and that's why I think the presence of an audience can actually be helpful. Because if you're trying to answer a question, 
you know, you're just not talking to the person that you know across the way. You're talking to an audience. And sometimes I think that can make you be a little bit more reflective, a little bit more declarative, because you're trying to put it across to people who, you know, who don't know you so well or, so well, or don't, you know, don't know something about you. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, our kids will be there, too, and that's going to, that's going to change everything. <laughs> That sounds like fun. And we'll be getting to know both Scott Simon and Marin Alsop much better when they appear together at the Cabrillo Music Festival. Thank you for joining me, Scott. My pleasure. You know, my wife, my, my beautiful, elegant, glamorous wife will also be there, and, um, who is French, as mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, a lot of people know. And um, in any event, she, I, I very looking forward to being there. But uh, one of the things that she really enjoys about when we get around the country is people always come up to her and try out their French. <laughs> so she says she speaks a lot more French when you know when we're in a situation like that than she she has in years. Although although my my family happens to be in France at the moment. Well, that sounds lovely. Well, uh, we look forward to seeing you, your wife, and uh, trying out our rudimentary French long ago for God after two years in college. Thank you for joining me, Scott. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.